This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Faskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Patrick Monod. Patrick is the founder and CEO of Pod. Pod is the ultimate AI co-pilot for B2B sellers. In this episode, we discuss Patrick's time at Fuel by McKenzie, how Pod competes in a busy sales tech market, what it is like to sell to salespeople, 
solo versus multiplayer user experience, how to have focus when building product, and the strategy behind their last raise from Bling Capital and go-to-market angels. Please enjoy my conversation with Patrick Mono. Patrick, I'd like to start with your time in university. So you went to Polytechnic in Montreal, you did engineering physics, and then you jumped into consulting after. Was consulting something you were always kind of interested in? Did you learn about that in university? And kind of how did that engineering physics degree kind of shape um, your early work experience, but maybe also what you're doing right now? And so I'll start a bit more about my engineering physics background. So to me, I've always been an Iron Man fan and seeing him working with, you know, neutron accelerator really piqued my interest when I was younger. And jumping in applied physics was me for just an incredible way to understand the fundamentals of the world, right? Uh, but very early in my you know, bachelor degree, I realized I was not going to be a lifelong physicist. It didn't really fit the work environment that got me excited. So I'd say probably halfway through my bachelor degree, I started to you know, try to take complementary courses in finance or economics and try to kind of broaden my horizon. Um, and that's where, so to speak, consulting to me was kind of interesting because what engineering and physics taught me is how to deconstruct complex problems right? And how to be hypothesis driven and look for evidence and answers to these questions. And ultimately, consulting is a bit of the same thing, right? Rather than working with waves and atoms, you're basically working with, you know, people and dollars and projection. So I think to me, joining, jumping into consulting and McKinsey was a way to continue on the development journey with strong foundations from a from problem solving uh, perspective. And, you know, I had a a blast overall in consulting. I never, uh, I've never really, uh, you know, t took that choice back, so to speak, or, or regretted that choice. Uh, what's been kind of interesting is I was listening to Oppenheimer, the new movie, uh, last weekend, and it it was just like a lot of old memories coming in. I understood a lot of the fundamental concept of like, gosh, what would have happened if I would have stayed in physics and continued down that path. So. Uh, it was definitely a, a lovely journey and definitely the, the stepping stone for a lot of my development journey as a, as a professional. So you started in the McKinsey office in Montreal, but I saw you went to this, this team or this, I don't know what they would call it at McKinsey, but called Fuel in San Francisco. Yeah. What sparked that move? What, what made like Fuel by McKinsey unique? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just have never heard about it. So Fuel by McKinsey is basically a, a practice focused on advising high growth tech startups and investors. So generally speaking, McKinsey as a consulting firm mostly focuses on large corporation, uh, you know, over thousands of employees that are a bit further along in their journey as a company. And I started my first year or two at McKinsey advising these corporations, right, on anything from cost transformation to uh, mergers and acquisition, which was, a, again, a great learning journey altogether. I learned a ton with a lot of great people. But at the end of the day, when I took a step back and asked myself what get me exciting in the morning, I always, I always wanted to get back into the technology world and better understand how to build and scale the company right from the ground up. And the fuel by because the opportunity kind of came up as a third year secondment. Uh, and that was a no-brainer for me. 
to me was either I leave McKinsey and I join a startup or I try to stay within the kind of startup realm, but continue learning as part of kind of the McKinsey ecosystem and doctrine. So um, that was kind of prompted my move from Montreal to San Francisco to join the team. And it was two absolutely incredible years. That oftentimes the context for a lot of these projects is very different, where in large corporations, it's all about how do we optimize the bottom line, how do we think about cost reduction, et cetera. Working with Fuel was always very, very positive. It's like, how do we grow in the next horizon for this company, right? We're already very successful, uh, but we want to get to IPO. And working directly with you know, the founders, the executive team members, the board, et cetera, which is very, very exciting and inspiring and obviously it reinforced my passion for entrepreneurship and technology altogether and during my time in fuel i had the chance to work with all different types of companies from productivity tools the ip as a service marketplace the fintechs and i think that also opened up my horizon in terms of what are the different types of businesses how do they behave differently and it was a a super uh, insightful experience altogether and after that, you go to a company, am I saying it right, Zinier? Uh, Zinier. Zinier. Yeah. And how did that opportunity come around? Why did you want to? Uh, it looked like it was a relatively early stage company. Why, why make that move from McKinsey? Was it, you know, you kind of maybe have completed what you wanted to achieve, what you wanted, you wanted to do something different. What, how did that opportunity come up and what was that experience like? The decision to move away from consulting for me was... Uh, quite intuitive. Uh, I felt like in consulting, I had heard learned a lot of concepts and theory to some extent, and did a lot of uh, you know market research, etc. But the big piece that was missing for me was just hands-on experience, rolling up your sleeve and getting things done, and being able to see a pro uh, see through a project from you know from strategy all the way to implementation and you know postmortem, so to speak. I think. There's a lot of benefits you can get as a professional to doing the full life cycle of a project. Um, and I was not a career consultant. I knew that. I knew that in the long term, I wanted to become an entrepreneur. So uh, I had tapped into, uh, tapped out, so to speak, of what McKinsey could bring to me. So uh, to me, Zinier, which was at the time a Series B, Series C startup, um, was kind of the perfect experience. So jump in, have an impact, work with great people, continue learning and continue applying a lot of the great things I'd learned in McKinsey. Uh, how the opportunity came about, uh, it was funny. Actually, you know, the McKinsey Network is a relatively broad network at this point. I had connected with, I think, a few months before leaving the firm with um, uh, an investor, just picking up his brain, you know, growing the network, getting to understand you know, how what he did for McKinsey. And uh, he was actually on the board or one of the investors of Zinnier. So he introduced me to the CEO. The CEO, uh, Arca, was looking for, you know, someone with uh, my skill set, basically a jack of all trade, willing to jump on any live grenade within the company. And, you know, a few weeks afterward, I, I decided to, to jump on board. It was a funny timing altogether. It was at the beginning of COVID. So some people could say that it wasn't the best timing to job search, but, you know, I was, uh, I was pretty bullish on, uh, you know, joining a startup and, you know, getting some hands-on experience. I'm always very interested, like, so I guess it's kind of like maybe the genesis story of Pod, but so you, you'd moved to Zinier and you're having a great experience there. Do you see kind of a gap on the sales side for that particular company? Are you meeting 
other people that have this issue? Did you have the issue firsthand? I always am very curious of how folks kind of come up with the original idea and then kind of get the business into motion there. I think I've, I've been immersed in the world of go-to-market pretty much my whole career, right? At McKinsey, especially the, during the last two years, I was doing a lot of go-to-market strategy and product strategy work with tech organization, like I mentioned. That gave me a very good, I'd say, high-level understanding of how, on how a revenue engine was built and how to optimize it from a leader's perspective, so to speak. Um, while I was a designer, I basically had two roles, right? My first year was doing a lot of biz ops and go-to-market ops work. The second year was uh, doing product for the company. Uh, while doing go-to-market ops, I had the chance to dive deep into sales ops, sales enablement, sales strategy, but also you know selling, right? Working side by side with account executives and business development representative to better understand their workflows, their, the tools that they were using, the challenges that we're facing, and how could what we could ultimately help them to be more performant or or be better at selling. So that gave me a very good first-hand understanding of potentially a problem at stake. And I think that's what stemmed ultimately my, uh, the problem where, where I identified the gap for, uh, that was a genesis for pot. I think as a fundamental problem, what we realized is that account executives, first of all, spend a lot of time on non-revenue generating activity. They spend a lot of time on admin work, right? They're over overwhelmed with tools and information and processes being thrown their way. And as a result, you know, they spent three quarters of their day on non-selling activity. That gets in the way of selling, obviously. Uh, but what we realize over time is that rep productivity is a known issue. People for the past 10 years have kind of thrown the whole kitchen sink of solution and tools at it. And it's not really making a meaningful difference, right? Or at least not positively impacting it to the level that people would expect it. Um, a more fundamental uh, 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 a more fundamental unaddressed problem that we've uncovered is that account executives make a lot of avoidable wrong decisions and they lose deals because they lack the actionable information and the guidance to know how to push deals forward. It's a it's a result of having a lot of information and very little guidance at the end of the day. You know, they have 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 deals in their pipeline. And the ultimate moment of pain that we saw is it's Monday morning. I'm in, a, I'm in front of my pipeline and I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. Some of my deals are further along than others. Some of them are stuck, um, but I don't have the necessary information for me to make proper decision and be able to push deals forward uh, down the pipeline. So I think that for us was kind of a, a key problem that uh, ultimately, if solved appropriately, would lead to incredible increase in performance by individual contributors, but also have impact for company-wide growth. And it's more important than ever today, as a lot of sales leaders are trying to do more with less because of the budget cuts, the layoffs, the recession. They can they, they need all the help they, they can get to, to be able to continue growing companies at a, at a pace uh, um, that they expected. How do you think about guidance, right? Like, you know, is it using you know, best practices across, you know, what you've seen in, in other companies. I guess I'm just interested in like where these best practices kind of come from. Is it based off just like the particular company and who's the best performer and getting people on the same level as them? Uh, how did you really think about that? A key term that stuck with me from very early on is kind of the concept of internal benchmarking. So we don't, we don't go into the market as salespeople 
assuming that we know what best practice is. Every company is different. Every product is different. Every sales process is different. Every individual and client is unique, right? So I think the the worst thing that we can do is coming and be very prescriptive and say, hey, this is best practice. You should do that. I think that's dangerous. It's a slippery slope because you're most likely wrong. And from a, just from a, from a product perspective, if you're wrong, we're using kind of AI or analytics while well, trust is broken and then people are not going to trust any of your rec recommendation or, or insights down the line. So I think our approach has been very much as look at their data, right? Look at data that is available and try to identify winning trends or infer what best practices for that specific company. So I'll give you a very simple example of what that looks like. Leveraging technologies like, you know, large language models, as well as more traditional ML models like predictive analytics, clustering, etc. So one thing that we do working with some of our uh, sales teams, the sales organization, is we look at their history of deals, right? Connecting with their sales force, we have access to a ton of information, very helpful information about deals, the nature of the deals, the activities, et cetera. By looking at the history of deals, we're actually able to, first of all, do some clustering and identify groups of deals that have similar characteristics, that are similar in nature, right? Because even with, within an organization, not all deals are the same. They don't behave all the same. You're not selling to the same people, the same product. So first thing is like, let's create groupings of deals that have similar, um, uh, similar characteristics or properties or, or behavior, right? And then we can use some predictive analytics technology, things like causal inference on stakeholder information to be able to infer what are the types of stakeholders, whether it's their role, their seniority, their department that are better indicators of your likelihood of closing a deal, right? We're not telling, you know, to go back to your point, like we're not coming in and saying like every single time you should connect with a chief financial officer. We're basically looking at the data historically and say, hey, it seems like in most of the deals that closed, or the, the deal that you won, well, these are the types of personas or individual or stakeholders uh, that help you to potentially close the deal. And that's the extent at which we want to support AEs. We don't want to give them the absolute deterministic answer, but ultimately give, the, the, give them the necessary information for them to make a, a final call and then take action. I think that the whole concept of bridging the gap between information and action Something that as knowledge worker, I think is very, very important. It's more important than ever for salespeople. Like I mentioned earlier, they're overwhelmed with information. It, initially, when I, I started Pi, I spoke to um, account executive and salespeople and they showed me their Octopage with all their applications. And there were like hundreds of them, right? And they're like, I have all of these great dashboards, right? but I don't know what to do with it. So part of the work is how do you actually leverage surface the relevant information for them to get, take action and bridge that gap, which ultimately leads to, you know, if you're in analysis paralysis and you don't know what to do, deals are never going to move forward. It's all about how can you make that next best action or the next decision that will improve your likelihood of closing the deal. With all that kind of information and all the different tools out there, how did that really help you design pods? So like, if you think about it, you know, like you have your CRM, you have your outbound tools, you have maybe re meeting recording tools that just, the list goes on and on. Yeah. How do you, do you, do you go, Hey, well, we can actually like replace all those tools or do you like plug in? How did you determine that? Is it like a tool that you want people to be on pods kind of platform 
or did you want pod to plug into everything else? How do you make those types of product decisions in an ecosystem that might be a bit more busy? I think that your last point is spot on that the sales tech space, a bit like the marketing tech space is known to be very crowded, right? A lot of different personas and use cases, and it can get very overwhelming to understand how, where do you fit, right? What value bring? I think from, from a product perspective, always bring it back to the problem we're solving and who we're solving it for, right? So when you think about the world of sales altogether, there's a lot of different personas. Like I mentioned, you have BDRs, you have account managers, you have account executives. And the white space or the opportunity that we found was specifically for account executives. How do you help them manage their book of business, their pipeline in an easier, faster, and more thoughtful way? So that, first of all, kind of helps us to Stand, stay clear of some of other competitors, right? We don't compete with the outreach or the sales loft of the world because we don't talk or, or think about prospecting. These tools are very good at it and we'll let them continue to do that. So I think that's number one. Who are you targeting? Where are you focused? What's your wedge into the space? And focusing specifically on account executives and focusing specifically on uh, pipeline management helped us to find, so to speak, a niche to start with. After that, the question is, okay, what is the ultimate pain that you're, like I mentioned, that you're solving? And then what does that mean compared to the other tools that are in the space? How are they addressing this pain or are they addressing it in a wrong way or a complementary way? So when we think about, when we thought about it, like we realized it, it wasn't, like I mentioned earlier, an information problem, right? There's information all over the place. It's more about, you know, how can you create a system of action that allows reps to make smarter decisions about their deals, better prioritize their time, and ultimately be more effective in their way of managing the pipeline. So as a result of that, we didn't feel like we were going to replace a Salesforce, right? Salesforce is a system of record with a lot of helpful information. Gong has a lot of relevant information from a conversational data. The question or, or the problem that we saw is like, well, AEs have, our work calls are a bit all over the place which impedes on their efficiency and effectiveness. So let's create a workspace. This is why when we talk about pod, we talk about an AI workspace because it's a workspace first and foremost that will allow them to organize their workflows. And on top of that, we'll give them the necessary guidance, a bit replicating kind of the work of a manager to, to be able to, to help them ultimately push deals, you know, close more deals faster, push deals further down the funnel. So it's more to answer your question directly, it is definitely more about what are the tools that we integrate with to bring in the information in a central hub, right? So whether it is, you know, CRM data like Salesforce and HubSpot, whether it is activity data from emails and calendar like Outlook, Google, uh, Suite, whether it is conversational data like Gong, lead data like Zoom Info, social data like LinkedIn Sales Navigator, those are all data from internal systems that are super, super valuable and underutilized today for a lot of AEs. I think the other part that is quite interesting, and that's where LLMs can be quite helpful, is how do you, you know, scrape the web, so to speak, and leverage the publicly available source of information, whether it's social data, Twitter data, firmographics information, news information, and basically pull that information in and help to steer decision making based on that information as well. So it's definitely more, their integration is a key part of our approach at Pod. Because ultimately, we're not, we're not, we don't see ourselves as being core system of records, but rather system of actions. What is it like selling a product to salespeople? I'm sure that's a bit unique in the sense of you, you know, you're selling to the expert, quote unquote. 
um it, what's the what is that like it's, it's definitely fun right to your point you selling someone to sell it you would assume that they can call it your tricks whenever you 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 know you take them so i think it's been it's been definitely interesting right sales people are known to be a, a relatively difficult persona the main reason is attention the thing when you're a salesperson there's only one thing that matter right and your compensation depends on it is your ability to close deals so anything that gets in the way of either helping you to close more deals close them faster or makes your life easier they're not going to pay any attention so getting on their radar and getting their attention is I think oftentimes a bit more complicated than in other segments of the market or for any persona. But I think it's been very, um, it's been a very positive experience ultimately because most AEs that we speak to, they understand the value that we bring to them right? and they resonate with it because ultimately we want to help them to close more deals faster, improve their win rate, improve sales velocity. And you know, salespeople are intrinsically entrepreneurial. They're always trying to find an edge to sell better or a tool to make their life easier, et cetera. Not that other personas are not doing that, but salespeople, I, I, I came to realize that they, they have really that, you know, driven and innovative mindset in terms of how they can continue to work better, faster, smarter. So I think the conversation we've had, the number of ideas that are surfaced when we talk to either a prospect or customers are endless, which is great from, from our perspective, right? Because A, they, it shows that it re they resonate with know the problem the solution the solution resonates with them as well but they also have a thousand additional ideas right it, it happens more often than not that when we have a 30-minute conversation with a prospect we go over 15 or 30 minutes because they're like oh you know this is great have so many cool things in your platform today what about this what about that oh this would be so helpful as well so from a product perspective there's a lot of noise that you have to to, uh, to filter through but fundamentally, it makes for just very genuine, interesting conversation, and um, so it's been it's been fun. I, I I've never really felt like I needed to do some hard selling to salespeople because ultimately, you know, we're just having frank conversation and we want to help them, and they welcome that help. You you spoke a little bit about like the you know like the end product, the user experience uh, there. I'm curious about like that initial usage of the product. So like let's say you've closed the customer. And it's their first time using the platform. What is that experience like? How do you optimize for that? Because I'm assuming, you know, hey, there's a space and you have to connect into these other platforms. How do you make that as easy as possible so someone can really get into using that product right away? There's a couple of components there, right? I think you mentioned the point about integrations. We've built our integrations in a way where an individual contributor can sign up and plug in their Salesforce, plug in their Google Suite in 30 seconds, right? Often joke around by saying that when we were first launched pod i got my mom to sign up and it took her 25 seconds if you're not faster than that there's you know there's a problem uh so that's number one right we need to make sure that we have the data in one place and that aes individual contributors uh can get started very quickly and we've built the product in that way i think the you mentioned user experience i think between the moment that they sign up and the moment that they see value that first five or 10 minutes is critical, right? You talk, talk a lot about the aha moment around kind of product-led growth tool, et cetera, is definitely the case here as well. So we want to make sure that in the first five or 10 minutes of using the tool, you know, users kind of see the value. They're like, wow, this is helpful to me. And so that will prompt them to come back the day after and start embedding pod as part of their workflows in the day-to-day. -day. 
So we've put a lot of thought into the onboarding, making it A, as easy as possible, but also as intuitive as possible. But also in order, I think a concept that we're, we're spending a lot of time with, is, uh, t- time on right now is the concept of passive value. How can we deliver value to reps without them even having to lift a finger, right? And things like being able to tell them in the morning when they wake up, it's like, hey, Evan, these are the five deals that you should focus on. And here are the actions that you should take, right? Whether you jump into pod afterwards or not, like pod is ultimately that AI coach, that AI sidekick that is always there in the back of your mind to make sure that you don't drop the ball on anything or that you're making the right move. So I think that those type of features that keep people engaged is what over time will drive, you know, the retention and pot to really become, you know, uh, an integral part of their workflows. And I think that's whether it's onboarding or longer term engagement, those are, are things that we're putting a lot of focus on. And ultimately it, it is rooted in having a very intuitive and easy to use user experience. You mentioned retention there. I'm curious about what kind of like metrics are you tracking? Like obviously if, if you helped uh, an AE individual contributor close one deal, I'm sure they'll see the value in the platform, but is there other things you're tracking? Like, do you want people to be continuously using it every day? Is it more about kind of like the impact? I guess, what are you looking at and what's, what's the most important thing for you? I think the great thing in sales is that from an ROI perspective, it's relatively simple. It's the number of deals that you're closing. Those are kind of lagging indicators, which oftentimes, especially in our case, given we're working with a lot of companies that are doing enterprise sales, those sales cycle can be very long and being able to see the lift can be relatively complicated. So we're putting a lot of thoughts into the leading indicators, so to speak. And you mentioned kind of usage. I think that part of delivering value is being able to show that AEs come back to pod on a daily basis or at least multiple times per week. So that's something that we're tracking very closely. But also I think uh, an important part is being able to see how within a company, so to speak, an individual contributor is going to collaborate with other colleagues, whether it's other salespeople, their managers, et cetera. Kind of that effect of kind of uh, pod being that workspace, a collaborative environment where you know, they share best practices, they help each other, they organize their workflows is key. It is really, really important. So spending a lot of time with usage, uh, looking at usage numbers, spending a lot of time looking at how organically grows within accounts as an indicator of, a leading indicators of like, are, are they seeing value? Are they engaged? Are they adopting the solution? After that, I think beyond other types of leading indicators is also, you know, the number of uh, deals that they're able to have in their pipeline. The average sales cycle or, or deal velocity. You have to, you can assume that if deals are moving faster through the funnel, they're doing something different that ultimately improves their likelihood of closing the deal. If they're able to manage 50 deals in their pipeline at once versus, you know, previously maybe 30 deals, well, that means that their capacity is increasing and they're, you know, uh, they're much more efficient and effective. So those are different types of, of metrics that we're tracking ultimately to better understand, you know, do we have product market fit um, and are we delivering value to users? I'd also be interested in like, when you have a product where, okay, like an individual contributor can use it, a manager could use it, potentially an executive could use it, and maybe they're all using it in different ways. There's also like collaboration versus like solo work. 
how do you think about that from a product perspective? Is it really just product market fit with one group with one particular product and you kind of expand over time? Or do you find kind of value in having cover a few of those bases to start? Um, we'd just be interested in how you view that, that way of looking at product. The answer to that question is one step at a time. Is like, I think what's very important for us, if you break out our product strategy into multiple horizon, is most important at first to get a very strong single player experience. Where an AE, if it, even if he or she is alone on pod, can see tremendous value, right? And I think that's where we started. This is where we're putting a lot of effort, focusing on the AE specifically as a persona, because this is where we ultimately found the most white space or opportunity. Right? There's a lot of tools built for management as a whole, whether it's the, like, like you mentioned earlier, the, the Clary, the Lego, the boostup.ai, which are doing a great job for forecasting, right? We're focusing on AEs first and foremost. So single player experience, most important. And I think the second horizon ultimately is the multiplayer experience. This is why you can you know, unlock an additional layer of value through collaboration, whether I think the, the most important multiplayer experience that we're seeing is the collaboration between individual contributors and management or individual contributors and the ops team or rev ops team or sales ops team. Um, not that salespeople don't really collaborate between each other, but they typically have their territories or their book of business and it's kind of mutually, mutually exclusive. So I think that's the second horizon for us. Like we're, we're making steps in that direction because we're seeing more and more managers wanting to get involved in such a workspace and want to find a, an environment where they can support their team as much as possible. So uh, that's more of a kind of a second horizon for us. But the, the most important thing is if you don't get the AEs to see values by, the, by themselves in a single player mode, uh, it is very unlikely that they'll then go to their manager and be like, hey, you know, I, I came across pod and it's super helpful. I want to use it more, right? This is not, you know, they won't do that unless they see value alone in front of their computer. And I think that is the foundation for kind of bottom up adoption as well. Right, a bit like the Slack approach, which was you go, you know, bottom up within the teams or you know, the engineering teams at first or product teams at first, then naturally it grows across your organization. Right. We want to do that at Pod as well because we want to build a tool specifically for account executives. Let's start there. Let's get us to be let's get them to be kind of our advocates, evangelists, and then naturally we'll grow within the organization and ultimately, you know, sell enterprise deals to chief sales officer or chief revenue officer. The question is a bit more focused on, you know, product on that uh, solo player look at things and like how deep you want to go. Obviously, you're that kind of coach, that AI assistant. How deep do you want to go with this? Do you want to get it to the point where, you know, it's writing emails for people? It's like, say this on a phone call. Like, are you looking at it like that, that it's like so deeply embedded that an AE like cannot like live without pod? The danger when building a lot of uh, the many entrepreneurs make when they build new technology is they spread themselves thin right, across different use cases, personas, et cetera. Uh, and I had a mentor back in McKinsey who said, if you're trying to be everything to everyone, you'll be nothing to no one. right? And I think that really stuck with me. So I think it is to answer your question, we want to go deep, right? Deep in terms of uh, the AE experience, because we think there's it's so it's such a complex, uh, convoluted process that there's many different use cases. But before going on to try to solve the needs of a different personas, we want to go deep with AEs, whether it is to help them to better prioritize which deals they focus on on a daily basis, to help them to better predict what are the you know the 
the actions to take that will help to push deals forward through the funnel, to help to highlight compelling events on contacts and accounts and signal, you know, key events about a, a company that'll help them to better tailor their messaging. Those are all different use cases within the AE world that will, uh, that we prioritize first and foremost. Cause I think in those type of tools, if you, if you're shallow in the type of features and functionalities, I think a lot of users will see right through it and ultimately they'll, you know, they're going to not, they're not going to experience as much value as they expected and you're going to fall short. So I think it is important for us to, to explore many different use cases within the A world before moving on to other things. If we could discuss your last raise and, you know, as much, as much as we publicly can talk about, but, you know, you raised from bling, some other go-to-market angels, how'd you run that process? And, you know, why that focus on go-to-market angels? Is that just, you know, more insights into how the product should be built? Uh, you know, great, more, greater connections, making sure you're solving the right problem. Uh, if you could just chat a bit about the process as much as you, as you can there. Yeah, absolutely. I think before sharing anything about the process, I think uh, it was important for us to be clear about who we wanted to partner with, right? I see raising capital as being a partnership, right? Not a unidirectional kind of relationship of you know money going one way to another. Uh, so we wanted, first and foremost, to get people that would jump in, obviously with capital, but as thought partners, sounding boards that could bring something to the table beyond just money. And um, to answer your question about kind of the go-to-market angel operators, like I spoke to a variety of different angels, like the one that had experience in the sales world and the revenue world understood the problem and they had a strong perspective and they had ideas, et cetera. And those are the type of people that as a founder, I want to surround myself with, right? These people that can add a lot, you know, bring energy to the table, ideas, help the continue pushing the company forward uh, in the early days, which is very important, but you know, throughout the, the life of the company. So I think that was kind of number one. We wanted to find investors, whether angels or, uh, or institution VCs would do that. And obviously uh, part of the process without going into many details is all about, you know, being able to get introduced to, to investors. So uh, I was lucky to have a network of of friends, of mentors, of former colleagues that were in the VC space. And I had the chance to talk with a number of different investors. And we were lucky to get introduced to Ben Bling and Kyle Louis at, at Bling Capital. And for the very first conversation, we saw that it was uh, going to be a very good fit, right? They understood the space. Uh, they had been in operators or founders themselves and very quickly uh, it became a very productive conversation, not just inquiring about the business, but think about what the business could be or what it could grow to become. Um, and I think that's ultimately one of the main reasons why uh, we decided to partner with, with Bling, but why we're very happy with the work we're doing. We were the, one of the first company to join their fellowship program. Right? Fellowship program is a bit of a, I like to call it a, a cohort of one, but it's basically a kind of an accelerated lack program where they work very closely with you. You know, they have a strong product council. They have a lot of resources and, you know, best practices and playbooks to help you, you know, execute. So I think it's been over the past, at this point, around six to six to 12 months working with them. It's been super, super valuable. And we're very excited about, you know, uh, continuing the journey with them. Being in the Bay Area, San Francisco, building down there, 
obviously, you know, you went to school in Montreal and you started your career there, but, and you obviously have founder friends that are probably, you know, still in Canada and some that are in the Bay area. You know, is, is there like a major difference to building in the Bay area? Um, is there something unique there? Is there like, it's like an energy is just everyone kind of focused on tech. I'm always curious of like your perspective on that, like living in both countries and probably having founder friends in both. Listen, Canada for me will always be be home. I didn't just study and you know start working in Canada. I spent most of my life in in Montreal, and um, I've reflected a lot about that question. What is so special about San Francisco that you know in Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary can't replicate? And I think uh, it comes down to I think a a lot of it I think is the energy, right? is the fact that San Francisco has just a thriving electric ecosystem where it is not rare that you go grab a coffee or you're going for a run, et cetera, and come across founders or investors. So like, I think that the fact that there's such a density of like-minded, driven individual that want to build and innovate and grow companies makes for kind of a unique melting pot. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I don't think that um, there's something unique to build here, right? It's great, I think, to connect with people, to ideate, to build company, et cetera, to, to, to you know, get companies off the ground, et cetera. But, you know, my approach and my philosophy longer term is not just be in the Bay Area, right? To have a heart in the Bay Area, but continue to work with people in Montreal and Toronto as well. Uh, our founding engineer, Andrew, is based in Montreal. We're looking to hire additional people in Canada as well. So I think it's a matter of where can you find the best talent. And yes, in many cases, you can find great talent in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, product talent, engineering talent, design talent, go-to-market people. There's a lot of great pools of talents in the Bay Area, but there's also great, amazing and large pools of talents in Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver as well. And oftentimes it's a bit cheaper as well. So financially it makes sense, but also, you know, being Canadian, I'm biased and I understand that there's strong talent, uh, you know, in, in Canada. And that's definitely something that is uh, core to the vision, long-term vision I have for, for the company, right? And like I said, Canada's home. I think it's a significant place for me as an individual, but also I think it's a great place to, to build businesses. So I'm not, I'm not those kind of diehard, San Francisco folks who will be like, it's either San Francisco or nothing. Uh, I think over the past three years, more and more you know, founders, but also investors are realizing that, hey, although there's great talent in San Francisco, it's not, it's not the only place. So let's kind of look, look elsewhere as well. I just think that point on, on density and we've had other guests on the episode, it's just like, you know, like everyone in the city is focused on tech. So if you look at it from other cities, there might be focused on finance, real estate, other industries. So yeah. I, I, I appreciate that kind of like density is, is extremely important and, and constantly bumping into people in the space is is just is, is awesome. Yeah. And I think um, to, to add to that point, by the way, it depends also the industry that you're in, right? If you're in the world of developer tools, for example, you're going to ha have, you know, an ecosystem of engineers and, you know, technologists that, you know, is your target persona you want to be in the day to day in touch with. In the world of sales, I think I've realized over time that salespeople are just spread across the country. I, you know, I speak every single week with leaders that in that are in North Carolina, in Chicago, in Austin, Texas, et cetera. So 
I think it's, it's a matter of what works best for you or your company, your lifestyle as well, right? You know, San Francisco is an expensive city as well. So I think it's more of a personal decision than, a uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that, you know, either has to be done or not to be done to be in San Francisco. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. I'd love to know what your favorite book is. And if you struggle to pick a favorite, maybe to something you're currently reading or have read recently. Something I'm currently reading is a, a book called Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of AI. Uh, it's a book, I think uh, the author is Max Tegmark and Rob Shapiro. I think it's very interesting because portrays a life where humanity merged merges, sorry, with the more advanced artificial intelligence and the impact that it has on the different parts of society, right? Uh, ethics, transportation, lifestyle, et cetera. So I think it's, I wouldn't call it either a utopia or a dystopia, but it's, it kind of like really helps you to, you know, project yourself forward into, you know, what is the world going to look like? And it really helps me to think, obviously being in the AI world about, okay, how are we either contributing or pushing in that direction? So it is a very, very interesting book. Um, that's something I, I started to read recently and I've been eating through. I'll have to check that out. What's, what are you most excited about in the next year personally and professionally? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, this morning I woke up and I was like, oh gosh, it's already August. We're kind of three quarters of the way into the year. I think for, listen, for, for me, uh, I'd split things, you know, personally and, and professionally, right? I think something that has been more important than ever for me in the past two years is having, you know, balanced lifestyle. So I look forward to the next year, just spending, you know, more time running, more time, you know, on my saddle, on my bike, more time playing tennis, uh, and, you know, being outdoors with you know, my partner, with my friends, with my family. So that's a key part. It's something I'm excited about. I've always been excited about that, but I, I continue to be. And I think professionally, um, obviously to continue to, very excited to continue to accelerate and bring pod kind of to the next level, helping more and more salespeople, bringing more, you know, people under the pod tent, both as employees, as investors, as, you know, customers and users. I think some, that's something that when I started to build pod, it was for me a dual mission, right? A, build a great product that would help people, but also build a great community and company. And I think that's something that as we continue to grow within the next year, uh, I'm particularly excited about. You mentioned, uh, you know, fitness there, riding your bike, doing a run. My last question would be, how do you deal with hard times? You know, is, is fitness very helpful? Is there other things you do? Would love to learn any kind of techniques that you've learned over your life. I tend to be a very rational, level-headed person altogether. So I take a very kind of uh, structured approach when dealing with hard times. But I think that the most important thing for me is being able to take, you know, to, to pull myself out of a situation or take a step back, so to speak. And that oftentimes leads to having a different perspective or being more creative about a, a specific situation and ways to find different outcomes, depending on the nature of that, you know, the hard times. Uh, and taking that step back for me oftentimes is related to uh, you know, outdoors and fitness, right? There's nothing like going on a three-hour bike ride or going for a for a 15k uh, hike in the mountains to help you kind of see clearly what's happening. So, I think that's the most important thing for me. Always take a step and 
things might change and might not change, but if you kind of go down a rabbit hole, things get very cloudy in your mind and it's way more difficult to find a way out of a tough situation, whatever the nature of it. So oftentimes it, you know, for me, whether it's fitness or outdoors is just like fresh air, not think about it. Just, you know, think about something else. Just have a good time, have a good laugh with friends, have a good dinner, whatever it might be. Just take that step back um, or else I think it can be fucked up. Great advice. I'd like to open up the mic to you just to chat about anything. How can people learn more about pod or just anything else you wanted to chat about? And obviously we'll hyperlink everything in the description for easy access. I appreciate it. Well, uh, I mean, if people want to learn more about pod, either as, you know, potential partners, investors, or users, you know, um, the best place to go is our website, workwithpod.com. A lot of resources there. A lot of uh, ways to start using the product. It's currently free. We're we're launching a, a pro and an enterprise version in the coming months. So try for free now that you can. Um, I think that's number one. And then also, I'm always always welcome people reaching out to either learn more about the company or find ways to collaborate. Right, something that is going to be a big priority for us in the coming in the coming year is going to be you know partnership. Right, working with other sales organizations, sales leaders, you know, fractional CROs, whatever it might be, um, it's a great way for us to to get the word out, obviously, but to continue learning. Right, it's a space that you know evolved very quickly, so it's all about how you can, in my perspective, how do you stay tuned and continue being in touch with you know smart people that know more about the space. So feel free to reach out uh, directly at hello at workwithpod.com or directly through our website. Awesome. Patrick, it's been a great episode and really appreciate all the insights into how you're thinking about product from like, you know, all the different angles. I think that was really enlightening. And yeah, it was great to learn more about Pod, yourself, your journey, and appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciated the, the candid chat. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.